Hello. In chapter 11, I promised you one hell of a guest for chapter 12, and I have delivered. This week, I sit down with the infamous Sasha Lord. He is the man behind some of the biggest events in Manchester and beyond. He's created era-defining events such as Warehouse Project, the UK's biggest metropolitan festival in parklife, and other European events like Croatia's famed Hideout Festival. He is the king of nightlife. He started out putting on his first events at Manchester's famous Hacienda before moving to reopen Sankey's. After throwing a few warehouse parties, he and his business partner Sam decided to put everything on the line and launch the world-famous Warehouse Project. That first season, they sold 100,000 tickets, and the rest is history. A born entrepreneur, a, a party mastermind, and a man of the people. Without further ado, this is Chapter 12. I'm Steve Bartlett, and this is the Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody is listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Thank you so much for joining me, Sasha. It's honestly uh, a bit of an honour. I think round our office, you're a little bit of a celebrity as well, because this crowd here, they uh, they go to all of your events. I've also attended many of your events. I've been to Park Life probably about three times since I've lived, since the, in the five years that I've lived here. Um, I've been to Warehouse Project on multiple occasions as well. And it, Warehouse Project was my first ever experience of a proper good rave I'd, I'd say yeah if, if, I don't know if that's a, a like a sort of a negative word but it was my first like immersive party experience I had in my life so I thank you for that what I what I want to do and what I often do when I when I first meet someone um, in order to help sort of hit those key moments and understand your story is set you a bit of a challenge and that's what I want to do is give you 30 seconds oh, God. to introduce yourself and to tell your life story. And what I found useful about this challenge is it helps to hit key, key moments in your life that you think are sort of poignant as such. Okay. Um, are you up for it? Yeah. Cool. So let me just put my timer on. 30 seconds. Right. Ready when you are. Okay, go. So born in Manchester, went to a good school, did well at my GCSEs, discovered the Hacienda, fucked up big time on my A-levels because I was partying. Then I realised, actually, that's what I want to do for a living, had no qualifications, put a few student nights on, that built up into night course Sankey Soap, which came Warehouse Project, which came Part Life, and then the rest is history. Amazing. You did that in 23 seconds. That's good. So you you touched on your early years there, yes, and your school years. So you were a good student that turned. I bad. was I was, I was a model geek. Really. So I was born in Altrincham, mm-hmm. went to Altrincham Prep. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody that went to all it was like a sausage factory. Everyone that went to Altrincham Prep was supposed to go to Manchester Grammar. Yeah. Um, so you know I was forced through the education system quite rightly by my parents. They wanted me to have a good education, mm-hmm. um, but that's where we differed because I, I didn't enjoy education you know I did it did really well at my GCSEs but I never it's really weird and I was asked this question actually last week when I was at school I knew and this isn't cocky or arrogant Mm. but I knew I was going to do all right for myself but I didn't know how I was going to do it it's really interesting so everybody in my class at Manchester Grammar who wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge and become doctors 
or accountants or lawyers mm. and they succeeded in that I had absolutely no interest whatsoever in, mm. in doing that and I didn't know I had I had passions mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to be growing up around the whole Manchester explosion so that's the period of like the Roses and the Mondays and New mm-hmm. Order and all those bands so, so there was a there was a, a lot of music happenings at the time in Manchester. And I think I just got on the crest of a wave and went with that. But there was no... I didn't know what I was going to do. I used to panic about it. Really? Yeah. But that's interesting. So you had that self... I refer to it as self-belief that you sort of knew you were going to be something... You are going to do something good, right? Is that... Yeah, I didn't... And again, I don't want to be cocky, but I never envisaged myself struggling in later life. Mm -hmm. I always envisaged myself going on nice holidays and, yeah. and doing what I wanted. Yeah. And it was the opposite was never an option. I honestly just got goosebumps because I've on, in previous chapters of this podcast, I've said the same thing. So I was a kid that um, was, I was predicted by Plimstock school to get 12 A stars at GCSE. And um, I was, I was a geek. Right. But then by several years down the line, I was in bottom sets for everything and I was failing on everything. But that 16-year-old kid was convinced that he wouldn't need school anyway. And hearing you say that kind of resonated with me because I didn't know how. There was no case study looking forward as to how that was going to play out. But um, I I, I don't... And that's why, you know, that was was quite... Well, in in, in the eye... I mean, it sounds very similar. In the eyes of the school, um, I was most definitely a failure. Mm. Um, I remember the the yearbook when it had everybody's name and which university they Mm. went to and, and... there was just a space next to mine. It was blank. Really? Almost an embarrassment. But now the school invited me back to give a talk and uh, my face is on the Hall of Fame, which is great. Crazy. Al- alongside Ben Kingsley, who played Gandhi. It's just <laughs> bizarre. Wow. Yeah. And how did your parents feel when you uh, you started to flunk a little bit in school? Um, well, it, it actually coincided with them um, separating, guess, really? and divorce. Yeah, so... Um, which wasn't anything to do with me flunking, by the way. Uh, I was I was already on that pathway. Um, but yeah, no, I think they were pretty... They never said it, but they must have been pissed off because it wasn't a cheap school to go to. Right. Um, you know, I think there were, there were times when they found it hard to, to um, pay for the fees to go through the school. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bit of, of guilt there. But I think my mum's pretty proud now. And you and you cited sort of a hacienda as being one of the reasons, and you have done in interviews, one of the reasons why you um, school became sort of a second priority almost, I guess. Well, yeah, so my only interest at school was art. That was my only interest. And I think it's because, I think it's for several reasons I actually did like art, right. um, contemporary art. But also it gave me the flexibility because nobody else liked art um, they were all too academic. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in the art halls by myself, which gave me the flexibility to skive. And it gave me the flexibility to hang around McDonald's driving down the road and, and hang around the gates at the girls' school there. So mm-hmm. that was that was my, my niche. Um, and I had an art... And at the time, I was... I dressed like a geek. Right. You know, if, you, if, I said, if I gave you a pencil and asked Stephen and said, draw a school geek... That was me. You know, the little box black briefcase with, yeah, yeah. with those gold, um, you know, the little numbers, the three numbers with the, the locks on them. So that was it. And I had this teacher called Mr. McGuinness, Stephen McGuinness. And he just said to me, look, you're conforming too much. And I remember the conversation. He said, why are you wearing that stiff jacket? You know, just mm-hmm. just 
get rid of it, get rid of that briefcase. You know, why are you conforming like the rest of the boys? And then literally overnight I changed because I was thinking about this. I thought, why am I conforming like everyone else? You know, I, I don't want to be like everybody else. Um, and then it was so bizarre. I caught him in the Hacienda. No, which was, must have been the lowest point of his life as a teacher, uh, seeing one of his pupils in the Hacienda. But we actually, we had a good laugh that night, and it was, you know, it was the start of something. What, what is the, for anybody that doesn't know, what is the, and the Hacienda was before my years as well. Mm. So I, you know, in my mind, the Hacienda is this, it's almost like folklore. I hear about it all the time, but I've never, I've never experienced it. What was the Hacienda? So um, everybody perceives the Hacienda to be a hugely successful club that was packed every single night to open its doors. And in fact, that's not the case at all. It had a, a very good run for maybe three, four years. That was it. Um, it struggled consistently for money. It had a lot of major errors with, with the gangs and things like that. But during that period um, and the explosion of Acid House, the world was looking at the Hacienda and something very special went on within those four walls that non, that a small select number of people understood what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you've got to... Th- Remember, this was the whole Thatcher period, and mm-hmm. Manchester was a pretty pissed off, depressed, um, grey city to live in at the time. And then there came this music, and with the music came ecstasy, and there was an explosion there. It was almost a release. It was like anarchy under this one roof. Wow. And, um, I, you know, the police didn't know what was going on. They didn't have a clue. It's like, what... You know, why are 2,000 people converging there? Uh, and what is that dance that they're doing? Um, and yeah, it was weird. I mean, the first time I went there was in 89. How old were you? I was 17. Right. And I went with um, a friend of mine called Peter Armistead, who's now a vicar. You joking. You know? <laughs> and um, we walked in. And actually, the first time we tried to get in, we got knocked back. Right. Because I'd heard about Hacienda and how cool it was, so I borrowed my dad's suit, shirt and tie, thinking that was the look. No. Got to the door, and the door lads were like, listen, dickheads, crack <laughs> on the edge of it, you know. So I revisited the following week in just a T-shirt and jeans, got in, and what we saw blew us away. It was like, what's that dance to do? What is that? Now, what was the dance? I, well, there's no point in doing it now, because <laughs> but you, you were literally throwing your arm in the air consistently. It was okay, an acid house right. dance. Got you. Um, I know, I still see it today, yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever seen... All the other clubs in Manchester were playing records that would be introduced by the DJ, mm-hmm. who, you know, would say, and now, you know, we're going to play, uh, you know, Happy Monday's track mm-hmm. or New Order's track or whatever, and, and then you'd hear it, and then he might announce, I don't know, Last Order's at the bar. And, and he kept before, interrupting. Yeah, interrupt. yeah, yeah. And then I walked through the doors, and this, this time the customers were praying to the DJ so the DJ was playing the records but the DJ was possibly more important than the records and I'd never seen this before he was mixing it and it was like this is something really really special Um, and the interaction between the customer and the DJ Mm. well we still see it now Mm. Um, but yeah it was we didn't realise until six months later that everybody was on ecstasy you know, really? we were just two kids from Manchester Grammar walking around thinking, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait till Monday to tell everyone. <laughs> so that, so that, that experience at Hacienda sort of changed your... 
it distracted you in some ways from the academic side of your life and then yeah I, I wanted to be different at that point something something snapped in my head and I remember even up until that day it was always cool to, and this is the like stupid things that stick in my head it was always seen as cool to sit on the back seat in the bus yeah I don't know why I don't know who made that rule up but actually when I was getting the school bus after that I don't I don't want to be like everybody else who wants to sit on the back seat and think I'm cool. Do you know what? I might stand up for this journey. Mm-hmm. I did, you know, it, was, it just said you can do whatever you want to do and be whatever you want to be. So at 18, you were in... Yeah. Um, did you go to university? No. You didn't, did you? No. no. Um, um, what was your... Upon leaving school, what was your, your sort of first job then? First job, I worked in a clothes shop in Altrincham called Flannels. Right, oh yeah, flannels. And yeah, it was yeah. the first door and I've got quite a few flannels yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And then on a, so I, I did that Monday through to Saturday and on a Sunday I used to do a market in Liverpool called Stanley Dot Market, right. selling leather jackets. And on, on, at your GCSEs um, or equivalent, what, what, what was your, how did you do? Very well. Very well. Yeah, straight A's. And then what exams came after that, was it? A-levels. A-levels? Yeah, right. and um, I originally wanted to do art, English and politics. Right. Um, after four months, the um, politics teacher said, listen, just forget this. You don't know what you're doing. So I was like, all right. And I went down to two A-levels, mm. really didn't enjoy English at all. Um, and actually, although I loved art, I only got a U at art because I didn't do the coursework. Right, got you. I loved the painting. Yeah, but just... The, I didn't like the write-up. Mm. Um, you know, I'd love reading about Matisse or Van Gogh or anyone like that, but I don't want to start writing books about them. Right. And and so you you leave your A levels with bad grades, terrible grades. Yeah, yeah. Um, you go and do normal um, normal jobs in the market stores and in Altrincham locally. Um, how did that go from there to getting involved in the sort of night life entertainment scene? Well, this was another thing. So a- another possible life changing moment. The people who I was serving at Flannels were all very successful people. Um, And I remember clearly they used to turn up outside the shop that had a glass frontage in in Ferraris or Bentleys. And I used to, I'd be sat there measuring the trousers. I can do turn-ups on trousers, by the way. (laughs) Or your inside leg. And I'd be sat there measuring them, thinking to myself, and, you know, bear in mind, we're talking about 1990. Mm -hmm. So it'd be a lot more expensive now, but I'd be thinking, how on earth can somebody not battering eyelids, spending £300 on a suit. Mm. You know, I was just, I was earning £120 a week at the time and I was thinking, how is that physically possible? Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking to myself, do you know what, if I had that money, I'd be really sensible and I wouldn't spend £300 on a suit. Actually, that's a load of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it tends yeah. to be the way. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so yeah, it, again, it made me quite... Um, did it make you want nice things? Yes. And have you always wanted nice things? Always. Yeah. Yeah. And um, now that you have money, was mm. there any sort of, how did it feel to get money from, from being a young guy just like me that didn't have it mm. to then getting it? How did that feel? And what, what, does, what role does money play in your life? So I think, um, well, first I went through, when I, when I started my student nights off, mm. I went through a terrible period of... Um, you know, I'd earn a thousand pounds a week or something, but then I'd spend eleven hundred pounds a week, okay. and then 
Um, I went through a period of two years when I was starting off where I wasn't paying my credit cards, I wasn't paying my water bills, I wasn't paying my heating bills, bailiffs used to turn up, and it, it was a nightmare, and you know, I'd have to move. I was renting at the time, so I'd, I'd moved so they couldn't find me, and there was all this dodging the bullets and stuff. And then there was a, a moment where I thought, right, it's t- well, it's time to grow up. Right. <laughs> um, but I think when you become successful and you reach that point where you no longer have to worry about how much you know I don't have to when I go to a restaurant I don't have to have a look at the, the prices on the menu mm-hmm. or I'm fortunate enough if, if I see clothes and I don't have to look at the, the price of the clothes mm-hmm. and I'm holidays I can go where I want so but there's always annoyingly when you think you've got to the top of the mountain you never are mm-hmm. There's always something much higher and there's always some, you know, there's always something to strive for and achieve for. And I think, I think um, when you do succeed, you notice a change in friends as well, which isn't particularly very nice. What's the change you've noticed in friends? So you're talking about friends that were there when you were... The friend, the people who were there at the outset are my true friends. they're They're my real friends and they don't care if I've got five p to my name they don't care if i've got five million to my name sure. they're my friends mm-hmm. but when people um now see what you do or they've heard your name mm-hmm. or they see what you drive mm-hmm. you get these these people these hangers on and it's just i reached a point last year where i said you know what i'm getting rid of it i'm getting rid of everybody i'm cutting them off mm-hmm. i changed my number at home um wow. and i i must I, I think i've got six friends maybe seven um, who are my true friends, and they're the people I'll speak to at home uh, on the home phone. Do you think um, what you do is quite, and being an entrepreneur in general is quite a lonely pursuit? Very lonely. Yeah. yeah. And, and and why is that? And talk to me about the sort of loneliness, the lonely side of it. Um, well, it comes it comes with a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I walked, you've, you've kindly just shown me around your offices here and I've seen how many staff you've got and it's mm-hmm. a, a phenomenal success. <laughs> and anybody, the normal person on the street will walk in and go, wow, Stephen, you're doing so well. This is incredible. But mm-hmm. actually, I know, although you may not admit it, that mm-hmm. you have this overhead mm-hmm. at the back of your mind and you feel responsible to pay all these people's wages. And if you don't pay all these people's wages, they can't eat or mm-hmm. they can't pay their rent. Yeah. So, you know, the more you succeed, the more pressure does come on your shoulders. And how have you been dealing with that pressure? Because so just going to jump back a sec. So you're you're this young guy seeing these Ferraris pull up at this clothing shop. You've now if we go forward to the point where you're starting to to run these, you know, big, big events, the the events you throw in this city and across the country, to be completely honest, and, you know, in parts of Europe as well are tremendous events that when i look at what park life is i i was saying it earlier on to one of um one of my members of the team i just can't imagine the amount of like logistics and the amount of people involved in that and the amount of people that have to be paid and you have to make sure people arrive there all of those things Mm -hmm. and throwing little events is is a fucking headache for me (laughs) so throwing an event of that scale for me is just something i would never like want to do um because of the just the, the moving parts and, the, and you know the pressure so how is how is that for you throwing a, a world you know renowned event like sort of park life in terms of pressure well I, you know i um 
I've got a great business partner, Sam. Sam, yeah. Um, and, you know, we bounce off each other. We're chalk and cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam and I will probably find it hard to sit and have a, a, a pint and have a, a full conversation because, we're, we're, you know, we are chalk and cheese, but it works. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam deals with the, the more the creative um, and obviously the artist booking and I'm more logistics, mm-hmm. dealing with the council, the authorities. Um, so it goes, it goes hand in hand, but the, I mean, the, the pressure is, it's unbearable. Um, is it? Yeah. No one ever the, sees that, no? No one ever sees that. From, from the outside looking in, it looks like you guys just have an idea and then it happens. That's the perception, right? Even when I read your story in the interviews I've read, it was, you had uh, an idea to reopen Sankey Soap and, and it happened. Mm. Um, you had the idea for Park Life and it happened. That's yeah. the only story I read. So what, what I'm interested in is, I know those things don't just happen. Well, I mean, you, know. you read that I had an idea to reopen Sankey Soap. And it, it, did, it did reopen, but what you don't read is the night before the Salford Gang's petrol bromed uh, the nightclub. Really? Yeah, you know, it was, it was bad times then. But I think we come up... We do come up with the idea, these ideas. We've got to, we've got a phenomenal team around us that we've created mm-hmm. as we've as we've grown. They've also grown. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we can say right, we want to do this, and then sometimes it's it's an impossible idea that we come up with, but the team managed to resolve it. Um, and I think certainly, you know, when things are amazing, when you put an, when you put an event on. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible event. Yeah. And the press all brown-nosing you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better. Yeah. Forget yeah, the yeah. money side. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's incredible. But then there's the other side that when something goes tits up mm. and all of a sudden for a two, three-week period, you missed a bad guy, mm. then that is a pretty lonely period. Talk and to me about tits up. Well, 2013, we had um, a guy called Nick Bonney. Yeah. who came to Warehouse Project when he was at Victoria Warehouse. And um, we didn't know at the time, but he'd been taking drugs all day long. And he became very poor at the Warehouse Project. Mm-hmm. And uh, our ambulance took him to hospital. And he didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't survive, sadly. So um, normal promoters, because it, it, it's not a common occurrence, but it happens in every single city. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to take the bull by the horns and... I wanted to educate my customers and other customers to say, look, I know you're going to party, mm-hmm. but don't act reckless mm-hmm. um, because you don't really know what you're doing or what you're taking. Mm-hmm. And this can happen. Mm-hmm. So I called a press conference against the advice of our PR company. I called a press conference, I held this at the Malmaison. Mm-hmm. And Sam and I were sat there with all these cameras pointing at us and, and all the radio stations had the little mobile phones in front of us. And my opening gambit was, you know, I thanked people for coming um, and I just wanted them to help me spread the word, whether it's on the TV, whether it's on the radio, whether it's in print and try mm. and educate um, the clubbers who, who are going out these days. And of course, that didn't happen. Of course. They completely demonised it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the front page of the Manchester Evening News the day after was, um, uh, what was it now? Super Club Death Boss speaks out or something like that or death club super boss speaks out and it was on all those sandwich boards around town and i just people didn't realize that when you go through something like that 
it actually affects you really badly. Mm. Um, you know, you do question, well, and Sam and I question, we debated whether to carry on the, the warehouse budget season that season because somebody who came to our events didn't make it. Mm. And if we hadn't put that event on, would, he, would Nick still be alive to this day? Mm. The answer that I came up with was no, because if he would have gone to another party anyway, where perhaps at least he had a fighting chance with us because we had paramedics, we had the ambulance. Um, whereas if he had been somewhere else, then you know, he, he would, at least he wouldn't have been given that, that chance. Um, so yeah, negatives do happen. Did you, did you get a chance to speak to his family or to, to anybody close to him at all? No, um, no, I didn't do. Um, when um, through the press we spoke, but that right. was it. But there was nothing negative from his family at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, from memory, I think his mum was a drugs worker, right. so she she understood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not a pleasant, not a pleasant few weeks. I can imagine. I can't even imagine the uh, what that's like to to deal with, and because it's that as you've, you, I can see there you've 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 done a little bit of soul searching to figure out whether whether you, I guess you I guess the question I'd ask myself is like could I have done more is there mm. um is it exactly the same like is it worth continuing but you know as you said these things these things happen in a, in a world where people party and it's correct and, and do you know the the not annoying thing because it has to be acknowledged it happens but because it was all over the press worldwide by the way not locally um the warehouse project now has this stigma mm. attached to it to the average, but not our clubbers, but the average Joe on the streets. That doesn't come, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't come. They mm. think a warehouse project, you know, it's just full of people that take loads of drugs. And mm. I'm not going to say there aren't drugs in there um, because there are in every single dance venue in the country, but you've been yourself. You know, it's a very happy experience in there. Mm. No, it's, it was amazing. Honestly, it was amazing, and it was. It honestly, I I remember being there and genuinely having the thought that I didn't know places like this existed. I didn't know you could ha- have an experience like this, um, and I went back several several times, and I still go now. Um, uh, and it's moved over. It, it's moved over to like um, a store street now. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, yeah. So it's gone back into the the tunnel, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. When I first went, it was over by Old Trafford. Which was the venue I just spoke about then. Yeah, so that must have been two thousand twelve slash thirteen. And so dealing with dealing with that that tragedy, um, how does how do you carry on from there? Was did warehouse take some time out or did it? No, it didn't take any time right. out. In fact, um, I, I went on a mission and I and I still do now. So um, we do random drugs tests um, back of house at warehouse project. Right. Um, I work very closely with the Loop charity and, you know, we, we've got hundreds of thousands, which sounds pathetic when I've looked at the figures that you just showed me on your social media channels oh, now, but we have, we have the ears of the 18 to 30, 18 to 23 clubbers in, mm-hmm. in the UK and they look at what Warehouse Project does. So if I can feed a message out mm-hmm. to say, I don't know, in Liverpool, there'd be these red tablets with uh, a handbag on the front of them, they're mm-hmm. lethal, avoid them. We do that. I'm not scared of doing that. I know other promoters or club owners who think, well, if you put a message out like that, you're saying there's drugs in your venue and the authorities won't like it. That mm-hmm. is that's not the case, actually. The authorities appreciate you doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about those moments and you, you referenced loneliness mm. following those moments. Um, 
how do you how do you how have you dealt with those tough moments in a personal way what what's your support system like is there an internal dialogue have you had therapy do you go and speak to somebody is it your family what's the i i'm um no i'm I suppose i'm a bit like a hedgehog right i just have to think it through myself mm-hmm. um the gym helps me a lot mm-hmm. so i you know i probably go five six times a week right you wouldn't think it looking at me no i do <laughs> i actually I, you do actually look like you're in really good so shape that, <laughs> I, that to me is a period where um, if you have a lot of tension, mm. go and punch a punch bag for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you do feel better. If you jog, it's a good time to think. Your internal dialogue must be pretty good, though. So that the voice that's talking back to you when you're thinking things through must be very very good at sort of rationalising things and not not like self-blaming or beating yourself up or worry, like worrying too much. Well, I write a lot of lists. Right. Um, there's nothing better than... If you think about things... In your mind, mm-hmm. you'll start forgetting things. But if it's written down with a pencil in front of you, yeah. let's say you have five or six challenges mm-hmm. to get through. You know, I go through it and then I cross those challenges off. Right. Um, and that's, that's the way I do it. I just look at everything on paper and try and, try and work it out. Right. And have, have, are you in a relationship? Yes. Married? Single? No. I mean, I'm in a, I've got a girlfriend. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And how is how is she found? Um, one of the things I always find really interesting, and this is, again, me soul-searching for myself because I continually fail in relationships. I've gone from one failed relationship to another, to another, to another, to another. And I've, I, was, I was almost at one point thinking that um, it's impossible for me to have a good relationship whilst running a business. How have you found that process of being incredibly busy but trying to um, compromise when you have to? Well, I think it's... it's um... I said this last week, actually. I, th- I am adamant, and there are many entrepreneurs who disagree with me, but I don't believe what they're telling me because you'd never know what goes on behind people's doors of their homes. But I think it is impossible to throw your life into your work mm-hmm. and at the same time, hand in hand, have a very successful personal relationship. I don't think that's possible. Mm. I think you either decide to put all your effort and time into one mm-hmm. or the other. You can't do two. You can't spin both plates. Um, and, you know, I've been um, seeing Sona for eight months. Right. Um, and I think she kind of likes what I do for a right. living. And I try and share, um, you know, it's quite ex- People find, people from the outside find it exciting what I sure. do. Obviously, I'm in it. But, but the, it's I mean, a fucking that's, nightmare. Yeah, but that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean, though. The, the finding it exciting, you're a successful guy, you, you go to the gym, very appealing proposition. But then when you become part of it, it's a different story because you're, you must be tremendously you know, focused at times. You must have a lot on your mind. You must be quite distant even when you're in the room with this person. Um, so the experience can't be as exciting and wonderful, right? Or am I wrong? No. Um, so my breathing space is my holiday. Right. So we had a, an amazing holiday back in January, 10 days, um, mm-hmm. where I literally just switched off. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I managed to do that for the first time in quite a long time. Um, and there's a couple of other holidays booked, you know, coming up. Um, but no, she, she understands that my laptop always has to be open. And if I'm being completely frank, hers is always open as well. And she's right. always looking at whether it's misguided or pretty little <laughs> thing or Zara. And apparently, I, I don't understand why she's looking at the same websites every day, but apparently the clothing changes every day. And, and then... Tomorrow, ten, 10 bags of clothes will arrive, and then eleven go back. I don't get. I don't understand <laughs> it. I'm old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. 
And and what is it about you that made you get here and other people that desire to have the life that you have? And this is a bit of a sort of a self-diagnosis, I guess. What is it about Sasha that's made Sasha sit here being the success that he is versus someone else that has the desire but isn't sat where you are? Well, I think most definitely luck has played a massive part in um you know where i am now i think being in the right place at the right time i also think as well what was that right place the hacienda okay right um as an inspiration as an inspiration yeah and then not just there you know i do reference that a lot but there have there have been several key moments throughout my life for for example working at flannels and seeing these people coming in and, and the nice cars and just um it gave me a kick up the arse really to to go out and just grab it mm-hmm. um but yeah sorry what's the question basically like i'm trying to figure out what it is that makes you successful and i read i read online in an interview that you did about your attention to detail and things like that and um being i guess being the person that protects the standard well i think i don't like to, to use the word um ocd right because i don't have real ocd but I'm certainly, I like everything to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, it really pisses me off because it means you could do better. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is that I know so many people who work nine to five jobs, but actually have great ideas and they share their ideas with me. Say, what do you think about this? I'm thinking of doing this. And they never actually do it. Mm -hmm. And I'll see them five years down the line later and they're still doing the same job that they hated when they spoke to me about the great idea. Mm -hmm. So... um, I did an interview last week and, you know, they asked me about this and my recommendation was anybody that has a good idea, like yourself, mm-hmm. you know, go and do it. Because it's not, by the way, because what you've done here is absolutely amazing, but you're 25 and if everything fucked up tomorrow, mm-hmm. okay, you'd, you'd be absolutely mortified, mm-hmm. but you're 25. Mm-hmm. You know, the world's your oyster. You can mm-hmm. go out and achieve whatever you need. Why do you think it is that people don't? end up doing what they they dream to do i think you can get i understand people like living in the safety net um of a nine-to-five job knowing you're going to come out at the end of the month with x amount Mm -hmm. out of that x amount you pay your mortgage or your rent Mm -hmm. you've bought your food you know what your bills are and you've got that in your pocket Mm -hmm. i think it's possibly the fear Mm-hmm. But then I do, I question myself, this is going deep now. So I can be sat on Princess Parkway. I've left the office, I've had a ticket count, we've had a great day. I'm sat in my car, you know, I have a, have, um, a car that sticks out. So What car is it? Do I have to tell you? 100%. A Ferrari. Oh, nice. Yes. nice. So you fly, so, finally got the Ferrari. I did, yeah. <laughs> nice. So I'm sat there in this Ferrari and the bus is next to me. Right. And the people on the bus are looking at me mm-hmm. and thinking, you bastard. But then I'm looking at those people on the bus thinking, well, actually, you're going home now to your loved ones. You can have your dinner on the table at 6.30 mm-hmm. and you've left your work behind. Yeah. And you don't see your work again until 9 o'clock tomorrow. Mm. So the evening's yours and the morning's yours and you can do what you want and you don't have any stress or worry because you're getting your pay packet at the end of the month. Mm. You may have the the worries of paying the bills and things like that, but who's who is the, who's chosen the right path? Now, everybody's going to say, the guy sat in the Ferrari chosen the right path. I don't know what the answer is. 
if I'm being honest. I've always thought that it was just subjective. I just think I I I, I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody. Yeah. Um, because I don't think some people would enjoy because I enjoy the bullshit. We refer to it as such a negative thing, but I've almost got addicted to it. I've almost got addicted to the challenge and the and the and things being tough. And my tough days, in in hindsight, are always my favorite ones. They're the ones where I I stretched myself and I came outside of my comfort zone. I don't think everybody would enjoy that experience. I think that I'm a bit of a loner in the same way that you've kind of described it being a lonely experience. I'm really good at spending all Saturday sat at my desk on my own. um, And I enjoy that. Yeah. And I think that's a bit weird. I think I've got a bit of a sickness in that regard. Do you know what I mean? Because surely I should want to go out and see my friends and see my family. No, I just want to sit on my computer. And and, uh, so I just think it's a subjective thing. It, it is, but I think you'll you'll reach a stage, Stephen, when, um, because believe it or not, mm-hmm. I know you can't tell looking at me, but I am a bit older than you. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, know. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so you will reach a stage, because you're in the, the aggressive stage at the moment, and you're building something fantastic. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. What's am I going to say? I, so I think what you're going to say, and this is what I've been told before, where um, other things, uh, I will I will want to... I won't be able to do what I do now, basically. Yes. Um, and uh, when I'm slightly older, and in some respects, 18-year-old Steve doesn't operate like 25-year-old Steve does. 18-year-old Steve was the aggression, the, the yeah. savage. 25-year-old Steve's a little bit more weathered. He likes, <laughs> you know, to to lay down a little bit more. <laughs> like, yeah. but I'm still super aggressive, but not compared to 18-year-old Steve. So when I think about what 30-year-old Steve will look like. Uh, I, I hope that I'm not doing this because I think that would be a very sad thing if I was still operating in the same way that I do now. Yeah. I think there's much more to life than... It'll come. And know. I also think, um, you know, so what's happened to me, I don't know how it's happened. I can only think it's an age thing. But in the last two years, I've noticed now I spend half my time giving advice to people. Mm-hmm. So... Um, because of you know where I am, what I've achieved, what I've been through, people are looking at me as almost an example, mm-hmm. um, and they're asking me questions. And I really enjoy giving people my advice, mm-hmm. whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know, um, but yeah, I'm doing more of these interviews and, and um, more talks at universities, and I think people quite like the idea that I achieve something by fucking up in the first place. Of course, yeah, because you're the underdog that, you know what I mean? And people have a very, they have like this, almost this picture of what a successful person, their life looks like. And it starts with being handed a silver spoon and then getting amazing grades and going to Oxford. And then, so anyone that shatters that perception is, they become super relatable. They become someone that is just like me and they become the the role models. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what a lot of people see in in you. And I see it in you as well, you know, Um, just hearing your journey today, um, uh, there's been so many times where I thought, ah, that makes sense now because of my own experiences and uh, my own perception of the world. On that point, if you were to give advice to somebody, and this person is you, when you yeah. were seven, 16 years old, let's say, yeah, and 18 years old, either, um, what would that advice have been? Let's say it's 16 years old. I think... You stumped me. This is perfect. Do you fun. know what? I wouldn't. I wouldn't have made many changes. I don't think because I was going. To, I was actually going to say I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. 
where I'd made mistakes. Mm-hmm. But you'll know yourself every time you make a mistake, mm-hmm. you learn from that mistake and it actually improves you to move on. Mm-hmm. So, no, would I, would I have said to myself, go and do your A-levels at 16, make sure you get your A-levels? No. Would you say that to your own kid now? Well, I don't have any kids, but if you were uh, to have a kid, if if I had a kid, no, I would I would much rather my kids, or kids, had fun at school, mm-hmm. rather than I mean, obviously I don't want them to completely flunk out, and you know, yeah, <laughs> but you know, I would want them to have more fun mm-hmm. than sit down and study all day long and then go home and then do homework all night long. No, go outside, kick a football around, just have fun. If if life isn't about because a lot of when I didn't have money. I made the, this, the foolish mistake of thinking that that was really important. And I thought, I wrote in my diary when I was 18, I want to be a millionaire before I'm 25, I want a Range Rover to be my first car, all these things. And I look back on my diary now, and I just think, what a terrible like goal to write for the next uh, seven years of your life. And upon arriving at the point where um, I have those things, um, I've now started doing a bit of soul-searching, I think, in myself and asking, what, okay, if... If I'm not doing this for monetary gain, then why am I doing this? Why am I building a big business and and um, why am I, you know, making the the money? What's the what's the point in it all? And as someone that's you know slightly wiser than I am, what's your answer to that? Well, uh, I mean, look how many people um, you're helping along the way. Look how many staff you've got here who are paying the bills because of you. Um, and you want to, you know, you went through really, you went through tough times. Um, we were speaking before, you know, when you were starting mm. off. So you're proving to yourself that you can do it. Mm. So you're just beating yourself. Mm. Um, you know, you're racing against yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's important, that you always better yourself. And and is that is that for you, is that the fulfillment from this for you? That, um, I, I, there's, you're nothing, there's nothing better than if I'm walking through Manchester or London and I see somebody who was at my school... Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything against those people, but they're they're now lawyers, mm-hmm. and they're wearing a really boring suit with a really <laughs> shitty tie. And I just look at them, and I just think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm so happy. <laughs> um, and it's not. It's, it, I think the freedom is important as well. Obviously, you, you're tied to this business, so. Um, I won't say it's a prison sentence, but, you know, it's a big ball and chain. Mm. But if you want to just stick a tracksuit on now and run up and down the Innsgate, you can do that. Yeah. And no one can say, Stephen, you're fired. Yeah. You know, just do what you want to do. Mm. I don't suggest you do that, by the way, because you get some really weird looks. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of people in the office walking around in tracksuits, and they're still here, so <laughs> it's, it's fine with our, our policy. Is um, what are your sort of personal ambitions? Then you've achieved so much, and I think where you're at, people would, uh, you know, this won't mean much to you, but people would do anything to to be in a position where you're at. And you must get so bored of people saying things like you're so proud of yourself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because as you said, it's just a battle amongst yourself. You're not mm. you're not competing against uh, an, another, you know, a competitor. You're battling Sasha every day. What is your, Sasha's next big battle then, and his next big? sort of ambition so i mean i'm really proud of my city mm-hmm. uh manchester and greater manchester mm-hmm. you know the 10 boroughs and i think um you know i've worked for my first night was july the 4th 94 mm-hmm. 
Wow. So this would be 24 years. I was two years old. Oh, I don't remember saying this. <laughs> I was one and a half, bloody hell. Um, so, yeah, I think I've seen everything come and go in the city. And I've seen the city develop in a very, very good way. Um, especially since the bomb, actually. That was a turning point for the city. So um, I'm talking about the IRA bomb, by the way. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so... Um, I would like to give back to the city what the city has given me because the city gave me lots of chances that other cities wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of other cities that would not allow somebody to put a rave on in a car park. Sure. Um, you know, when I wanted to reopen Sankey Soap that had been open from 94 to 98, when it wasn't mine, the police shut it down because there was guns and there was um, all sorts going on, the drug dealing, and I wanted to reopen it. And I, I proved to the police I could do that. Most cities won't allow that to happen. That it's shut. It's staying shut. So we have a very, very forward-thinking council, Labour-run council in, in Manchester. Um, and they've always understood the importance of the nighttime economy. And especially, and I'll reference it again, but looking back at the days of the Hacienda when the world was looking at us as the music leaders... Um, that was recognised how important it is mm-hmm. for the city to to understand and support nighttime economy, and that's that's been consistent throughout. Even when councillors have come and go and changed seats, mm-hmm. um, you know that that has been recognised. So I'd like to give back mm-hmm. to the city what what they've let me achieve. I'm, I think you'd be a great ambassador for the city. Thank you. Speaking personally, because yeah, you've got a very sort of authentic relationship with the city, and you, um, uh, I don't think many people that. Um, are, are sort of better placed to uh, understand both sides of the, the spectrum, if you know what I mean, in terms mm. of what the city needs, but also what the the people that live within the city are looking for. Great. Um, so definitely have my support. On that. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. If you, I had another question, which I tend to I tend to ask everybody I meet. It gives me a bit of a perspective on who your sort of idols are and such. If you had a dinner party and there is uh, six seats, right? One of them's mine because uh, I'm, I'm yeah. cooking. The other one's yours. The other four seats for the dinner party, mm. dead or alive, who would you um, who would you be inviting to the table? David Bowie. Right. Why? Oh, he's a fucking genius. Okay, fair enough. I mean, he, <laughs> he um, reinvented himself so many times mm-hmm. um, against all the odds as well, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, I think Prince nice. would be there. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, you're going to think this is absolutely pathetic now. Right. But, but I know we do have something in common. Right. Love him or hate him, Jose would be at the table. Mourinho? Yes. Oh, I love Mourinho. We're both... We have the same birthday. Are you... Really? Yeah. Oh. And I've, I've met him twice, actually. Have you? Yeah. What's he like? Not what you'd expect. The loveliest guy. Um, really nice, genuine guy. Although I had got his daughter guest list for the MTV Awards, so maybe oh, it has something to do with that. Bribery. So, where are we? Bowie, Prince, Jose. Mate, mm, I've met her before, but maybe Grace Jones. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do, you, do you still, and this is a bit of a segue because I just crossed my mind when you, when you said um, about Prince and Bowie. Um, do you still get the same excitement from putting on your events as you did when you started? No. You don't? No. How has it changed? Definitely not. But now that it's um, it's a lot more serious because they're a lot, they're a lot bigger. You know, you can put um, part life was twenty thousand people when it started at Platfields one day. Do you get anxiety in the lead up to the event? Very much so. 
Yeah. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Is it just, again, that sort of inner monologue going to the gym? <clears throat> going to the gym and week leading up to it, uh, red wine does appear. And, uh, you, and you must be thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong. Everything. Yeah, everything. So during park life, um, you know, my, this is an example, actually, how people think. And there's nothing wrong with this because people don't understand how it works and the intensity of it. But one of my um, girlfriend's friends said, oh, we're looking forward to part life. We can hang out with you that weekend. And you must think. That's like, <laughs> you know, I'm responsible for 85,000 people every day for two days. 300 plus artists. You know, it, it is, there's literally a hospital on site. Mm. You know, there's 84 catering units, 13 stages of music. And you think I'm going to hang out with you for two days. <laughs> are, you, are you mad? <laughs> So for those two days, there's something called event control, right. um, which is a uh, an arena that we set up where there's a wall of CCTV cameras mm-hmm. watching everywhere throughout the park. Mm-hmm. And then everybody has their own desk, all the statutory authorities. So there's a desk commanded by the police, mm-hmm. NWAS, wow. um, you know, the fire service, environmental health, security, my desk. And it's in the middle of the room, you have this huge map. Mm. And when something goes wrong, we all stand around it and it's right. Here's the challenge. How do we overcome it? What's the worst thing that's ever gone wrong? Um, last year was was last year was a nightmare. So we had Frank Ocean I heard refusing to go on until something until we'd resolved something. So he went on thirty eight minutes late. I heard about this on Twitter. Yeah, so he he went on thirty eight minutes late until we resolve something for him. Right, and I can't then, share what that was. Do you know what it actually, it was something technical. I actually can't remember what it was. Right. It was not him... Being a diva or anything. Being a, no, it was something technical, and I get why he didn't want to go on, because it had to be perfect for him as right. an artist. So because of that, he insisted still on doing the full set, which meant I'd be breaking the 11 o'clock curfew. So I had to... Think of something like, how do I explain to the head of the council here now? I want to go over the 11 o'clock curfew because I will get the bollocking of my lifetime mm. and I could be fined. They might not let me do this again next year. And then at, at exactly the same time, there was um, a tragedy where somebody had fallen on one of the Metrolink lanes in the city centre. Nothing to do with park life. Right. So none of the trams were working. Yeah. Um, the trams stopped working. So at the same time, then I had 20,000 people who had to walk back into Manchester. So out of that, I managed to convince the council that a staggered egress would be a lot better oh, wow. than actually kicking everyone out at the same time and 20,000 people walking back into town, stagger the egress out and, and do that way. And that, and that in that moment when Frank Ocean is is you know he's not going to go on until this is fixed. This is your problem, yeah. right? This is your problem to deal with. Yeah. The buck stops with you, presumably. Yeah. And I, I imagine well, every- it stops with me and Sam and, right. and the team, but probably because I'm um, known on social media, I'm the one that gets the aggro from you know the customer. If something goes wrong, they, they come for me. Mm-hmm. It's an immense, uh, immense amount of pressure. It really mustn't be a pleasant experience for you. It is when it's good, though. When it, yeah. And imagine when it's over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 
And what's the what's the what's the the big vision then for Park Life? Well, Where part, do you want to take it? It can't go any bigger. Um, Park Life will always remain in Manchester. It's a question I guess asked a lot. It's going nowhere. It's the biggest metropolitan uh, festival in the country now, mm-hmm. and I'm really proud of that. Tremendous. Proud Manchester has that. Um, so in terms of Park Life. It's all about the thing we can improve is the production. Mm-hmm. So we've got some really nice bits coming in this year. Excited. Yeah, some extra special stages that just look incredible. Um, they're very costly. So Sam went to see Kendrick Lamar last week. Oh, wow. And in London, actually, in the next day, he phoned me up. He's like, right, that's it, main stage. We're going to have it exactly the same as Kendrick Lamar's stage. I'm like, Sam, it costs millions. So we've had to find <laughs> sort of a fine line between the two. Mm-hmm to keep him happy and to keep the budget happy mm-hmm. um but yeah that's that's how we can improve on it your personal life you you're how old are you now 46 46 you look really good you look about 30 so i guess Thank that's you. The, going to the gym every day um <laughs> healthy eating healthy <laughs> kettle, but you look tanned as well which is really good that's the probably been on a holiday at some point recently or is that just a natural... No, well, holiday, but also the Sunbed Centre next to Waitrose and Altrincham. Nice. Yeah. See, this is all about honesty. I would have admitted that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the depth I was looking for. Okay, and my last question for you then. Um, as someone, again, that is significantly more wise than I am and has been, on, especially within the Manchester scene, but in the business world longer than I have, what one piece of advice would you give to me um, as I continue on my own sort of personal journey and to sort of young entrepreneurs that are like me um, starting out? Um, I think just do exactly what you're doing now and whatever belief you've got is quite clearly working. And anybody around you will say, well, Stephen, I won't do this. I won't take on the 10 people because think of the wage bill and the overhead. Mm-hmm. Fuck them. Just do it mm. because it's succeeding now. And, you know, cut out all those negative people. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a great relationship with my dad, but he, he always used to say, if you hang around with shit, you'll end up in the shit. Mm-hmm. And it's true. If you hang around with negative people that want to pull you down and question everything you do, mm-hmm. you'll you'll be pulled down with them. Mm-hmm. So, so it's that circle, I guess. Release yourself and just surround yourself by... As you have done here, you know, I've met your, your colleagues and your partners, just surround yourself by like-minded people who want to go out and make a difference. Mm. That would be my advice. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Um, I cannot wait for Park Life this year. I saw the lineup and, I sh- and the, the reaction from the team here kind of says it all. I'm of the group here. I'm probably the one that's less involved with, uh, with music events because of time and I, I, yeah. I, I struggle to make the time. For it, but the people that are the hardcore Park Life fans here have never been, and I'm not just saying this to bullshit to your face. Like, <laughs> they've never been more excited. And um, I did a bit of a test to the guys. I was like, "Have you guys all seen the lineup?" They're like, "Oh my god, it's sick this year!" So that's a tremendous credit for you. I want to thank you on behalf of Manchester as well because you've brought a lot to Manchester. Even out, you know, bringing the, having the festivals here and having the events here brings a lot to the wider economy as well. Um, you've also been a tremendous advocate and. Um, for for the city on a wider stage, but you're also approachable, which I find really fascinating. The fact that you even came and did this, the fact that you respond on Twitter, that it's you that's tweeting, I think is something that a lot of sort of leaders, and especially leaders within a city, um, 
could take notes from. Thank so you. on behalf of Manchester, I just want to say thank you so much and keep inspiring us and keep helping put the city on the map um, because I think it's, uh, it's going to help a lot of other young entrepreneurs to come try and follow in a similar footstep. No, so thank you very much. Thank you so I'm much. Appreciate it. it. Thank you so much for listening to this chapter. It means the world to me. If you can, please do subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified the minute it's released. I'm often quite bad at letting you know when it's out on my social channels, so this will give you a bit of an advantage. Also, if you have a couple of seconds, please do leave a review for me in the App Store. Everybody that reviews the podcast and tweets me, I promise you, if you leave your handle in the review, I will get in touch. Thanks, and I'll see you next week. Bye.